time for our resident historian, Felix Spinell. The book and film Boys in the Boat has brought worldwide attention to the 1936 gold medal winning crew from the University of Washington. And now, a vintage custom powerboat that was key to that team's success and that once almost went into the dump, <laughs> has been restored and will be on display at this weekend's Seattle Boat Show. Good it's, morning, Phil. It's a story we can all identify, all of us having at one point almost gone, being sent to the dump. Um, now, this isn't a rowing show we're talking about. This is called the Connie. It's a coach's launch named for Hiram Conabare. He's that very influential UW rowing coach from 1907 to 1917 who changed the UW and changed rowing in general. Now, there's a lot to the story. We can't cover it all. Fortunately, there's a panel discussion this Sunday at 1 p.m. at the Seattle Boat Show at Lumen Field. Wow. Um, now, the Connie is a coach's launch. That's a specially designed and built powerboat used by coaches in the UW rowing program from the early 30s to about 1971 including for those Olympic medalists back in 1936, to follow alongside the guys rowing and be out there on the water. It has a forward cockpit where the coach can sit or stand, and a separate rear cockpit where the steering wheel is. It was built by Schertzer Boat and Machine Works at the foot of Stoneway on Lake Union, just across the lake from where we sit right now. It's 28 feet long, kind of on the skinny side, to create minimal wake to not affect the rowers. Now, the Connie is featured multiple times in the Boys in the Boat movie, but that's a replica we see in the film. So more about that abomination a bit later. <laughs> now, the real-life Connie belongs to a guy who lives in Snohomish County named Kirk Knapp, who should get a gold medal himself for saving it. Um, he first set eyes on the boat back in 1975 when he was a student at the U and a former coxswain who had become team manager for the crew. Part of his job was maintaining a newer coach's launch called the Husky 2. Now, one day back in 1975, the Husky 2 needed some parts for repair. Crew coach Dick Erickson had an idea about where Kirk could get some of the parts he needed. You know, you should go over to Corpyard number 2. That's where Connie is, and there might be some stuff on that. And I went over, and here was this boat lying in the dirt, you know, with a big hole in the side. And at that point, she'd been out in the rain and sleet and snow exposed for, you know, five years. I think this story is better than the gold medal story from 1936, personally. Now, what happened was back in 1971, a couple of rowers and their dates had taken the Connie out on an unauthorized pleasure, pleasure cruise. They'd collided with another boat over near Madrona. Connie was almost cut in half. Students were injured. They got in big trouble. The Connie was towed back to Montlake, or what was left of her, and stuck in a storage yard near where the driving range is now. Now, something about seeing that old wreck really got to Kirk Knapp. He was smitten. It's a long story, but he was persistent about convincing the powers to be, that be that he was the guy to save the Connie. What he credits are these multiple 29-hour one-way drives between Seattle and San Diego, and then back for another 29 hours, what? where he's got Coach Erickson in the passenger seat, and, and, and Kirk's driving, and he's sort of just wearing him down about how he should be given the boat. <laughs> So went on for months. Finally, the red tape was cut. They told Kirk Knapp he had to come and collect the remains of the Connie on a Saturday, or it was headed to the dump. All he had was a Toyota Land Cruiser and a tiny trailer. I took a bunch of three-inch pipe and made a A-frame for the front of my Jeep with a winch so I could pick it up. And I had a little 14-foot trailer for hauling my sunfish around. Took that little 14-foot trailer and stretched it out with a bunch of three-inch pipe and made it 30 feet long. And on that Saturday, we were in the yard and loaded it up and got out of there. That's the thing. When you ask for some cool piece of history, you got to be ready to pick it up at a moment's notice and get that yeah, three-inch pipe ready to right. build whatever, whatever contraption you need. He really wanted that boat. Yeah, he really he? did. Now, he didn't have a garage or a workshop or any place to store the boat. You know, every, Who else can identify with that? So at his rental house in the U District, he tore down the fence in the alley for access and stuck the world-famous Connie right there in the backyard. Now, at that house and the next rental... Nobody was the wiser. I was always pretty good at hiding it. I don't think my landlords ever knew it was there um, in either place. 
So it began a decades-long odyssey from those rental properties to his eventual home in Arlington up in 1990, and then to a boat restore up in Whatcom County in 1996. Along the way, Kirk Knapp stumbled across what's believed to be the original engine for the boat, and he acquired that as well. The restored Connie was launched on Lake Whatcom back in 1998. It's been a fixture at special events with the UW, like regattas and opening day. Now, also there when I spoke with Kirk Knapp was Eric Cohen. He's also a former UW rower, and he's the official historian of both the men's and women's program. He's written all this stuff online. His research was a huge source of information for Boys in the Boat author Dan Brown. Eric Cohen says one thing is very clear. Um, saving the Connie was meant to be. All of these things are very serendipitous, but they all happen for a reason. And I think uh, Kirk and I would, would, would agree that it has to do with the magic of the program and, and the community. The Seattle community has always been there to support us. Everything he's saying here just reminds me of that of that Seattle community. That engine was saved, you know, and the boat the boat said that they knew not to throw that away. For some reason, they didn't. They could have easily hauled that off to the dump. It didn't go to the dump. You know, now I said the movie boat's a little different. It only has one cockpit. Apparently, it's some vintage boat the producers found over in England and painted it to look like the Connie. Why? Well, when I think they it's had about the money, well, they had the actual well, what, money. They had the actual thing <laughs> already fixed up and ready to go. Well, Kirk Knapp says he bit his tongue rather than point out the inconsistencies when he saw the film. He also told me he'd offered to fly the real Connie over there along oh. with himself as a technical advisor, of course, at the producer's expense. I don't think they ever actually responded officially to that offer. Now, as to why he went on this decades-long odyssey to save the Connie and to maintain it to this very day, well, I guess maybe that's just a, a silly question. Well, for me, it's just. It, I, it's, it's, it's love. I mean, I love that boat. Um, I don't know how to answer it any other way. You know, so the Seattle Boat Show, its local institution, kicks off this Friday, runs through the following Saturday. That UW Rowing History panel is this Sunday at 1 o'clock at Lumen Field. Uh, Kirk Knapp will be there, Eric Cohen, some other people. They have an hour. I don't think an hour is going to be long enough. I think they're going to spill into an no. overflow period out in the parking lot, is my guess. You uh, could do this for three or four hours. And the Connie will be on display for the whole show. And it's just a so gorgeous restaurant. You can see the actual boat you there. Can, you can, you might the even Seattle be able to touch show. it. I'm not sure. They might even let you touch it. But yeah, this, this is a very cool, uh, very cool piece of Northwest history. And uh, we've got photos of the Connie in its various stages of destruction and restoration at my face. <laughs> Facebook page. I'll have it all at my Northwest a little bit later on. Just a great piece of Northwest history. Everyone you know, loves old wooden boats. 20 years from now, when they reissue and they remaster Boys in the Boat, they can use AI to Photoshop <laughs> Photoshop the actual boat into the movie. Or make a sequel that's all about the restoration of the Connie. That should be, this is this is the real boat, the boat with the boys, or some other, you have some clever twist on the title I you, wasn't able to You have to think your of. new crusade. Yeah, yes. I don't know, Dave. I'm getting old. Yeah. Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, right now we head to Washington, D.C., where the House Homeland Security Committee has approved articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. For the details, I called up CBS Congressional's correspondent, Scott McFarlane. What the Republicans are arguing is that Secretary Mayorkas has, in their words, willfully failed to enforce and follow immigration law and breached the public's trust, they argue, by not fully complying with the House Homeland Security Committee. Democrats were unequivocal throughout this marathon 15-hour hearing that that's not what a high crime or misdemeanor is. That's not even close to a high crime or misdemeanor. It's a policy dispute. But Republicans forged ahead on a party-line vote to refer to articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. The House will likely vote to do the same, potentially next week. And then all of this hits a dead end in the Senate. But you, you can sense here that all of this is mired in campaign politics because Trump's name kept coming up during this hearing. Mm -hmm. And Trump's the one who'd like to see the word impeachment watered down as best as possible before November. <laughs> well, but you can't just make stuff up, can you? I mean, is there... So he's disobeying 
orders, direct orders to close the border? What, what, what has he done exactly? The argument they're making is that he is not enforcing immigration law as passed by Congress. Mm -hmm. And that's an argument that Mayorkas and the Democrats would object to and say, no, I don't think you understand that the Homeland Security Secretary is trying to adhere to the policies he believes are right. Um, But none of that really matters in the end. I think what you have here is, politically speaking, an impeachment vote that heads nowhere, Secretary's not going to be removed, not going to be the second cabinet member in U.S. history to be removed. But everybody on Capitol Hill is raising the profile of the issue of border security. And that's right where Republicans want to be as not only the presidential starts, but their own campaign for re-election starts. Well, but nobody, not even Democrats, want this crush of immigrants at the border to continue because the cities run by Democrats are the ones that are really under pressure here. So uh, is there anything moving through Congress now to pass a solution that everybody at least sort of agrees on? Senate negotiators have been working on a -a once-in-a-generation plan to overhaul U.S. border security law and give the president, this president and future presidents, more power to stem the flow of migrants when there's a crisis, Mm -hmm. to shut down the border, in essence, when there's a crisis. This is power Donald Trump was asking for when he was in power, when he was in the White House, and it's the power that the current White House is asking for. They just can't quite get there, Dave. They can't quite get this thing on paper. Every time we ask, they say, we're probably just a few more days away. Maybe we can have it within days. Well, it's been more than a month now. And time's running short, not just because those elections are coming, but because Donald Trump says he doesn't want a deal, which lets his loyalists in the U.S. House build a wall of resistance to stop this thing from ever becoming law. But the window is very, very narrow, and I'm not sure it isn't closed already. Hmm. Well, I mean, and we've got that quote from Trump saying, yeah, go ahead and blame me for this. But let me just, uh, you know, uh, oppose a hypothetical. If uh, Donald Trump suddenly said, look, this is this is terrible. This is uh, hurting human beings. Uh, Okay, I'll show you that um, I'm a serious candidate for president and I will now uh, release members to vote their conscience on what would solve this current crisis. Would that be enough to do it? That feels like a language Donald Trump doesn't speak, but let's go ahead with the hypothetical. Yeah, I think it would. Um, you got to be mindful of the calendar here, Dave. Trump's loyalists are loyal throughout, but especially right now, the only threat to Republican members of Congress in most of America politically is in a primary. It's from somebody outflanking them to the right. They're in districts that keep them insulated from any real challenge from Democrats because of demography. So their concern is being outflanked to the right. They are going to be especially diligent about following the wishes of Donald Trump until those primaries are over. And that means Trump can really press and leverage them right here, right now, just as this border security bill is trying to make its way out of the Senate. I got to tell you, Dave, I talked to any number of Democrats who said this thing needed to get out of the Senate before the New Hampshire primary before Trump became the clear presumptive nominee. CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan. The child care crisis persists, and right now the legislature is trying to make it more affordable and more accessible. A couple of bills have been introduced this session, one being House Bill 1716, proposed by Representative Alicia Rule of Blaine. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning. Can you explain House Bill 1716 for us? Yes, of course. Well, as you know, I I think uh, child care is really hitting a crisis point 
for everybody. It's not just that we are um, really struggling with childcare for those who can't afford it, which is definitely an issue. But what we're learning is that we just don't have enough childcare spots for anybody. So this is a bill that would bring even more people to the table to solve this problem, particularly business. Um, it would allow for a tax incentive for businesses who have either on-site childcare or provide childcare stipends or reimbursement as a way of um, putting together a benefit package. And we just think this is such an important way to bring everybody to the table to solve this problem. Uh, it's an important one for both, you know, women and the economy and, of course, our littlest Washingtonians, the kids. So the money comes from essentially a, a B&O tax. Is that right? It's a tax incentive. So it would make a tax break for those businesses who are actually um, providing the child care reimbursement to their employees. Uh, we just know we've got workforce shortages across the board, and we know that we need everybody at the table to bring solutions um, and multiple solutions at the same time. So where does the money come from to reimburse those companies? I suppose that's what I was asking. Yes, it, uh, that's right. It's a B&O tax rebate. Um, in Washington state, businesses pay on gross receipts for uh, their B&O tax. Um, and so that is something that we've been discussing at length over time. And this is one of the ways that we think would be a creative way that kind of works for everyone. So this was like a, a tax credit. So is the amount that you rebate equal to the cost of the daycare or would businesses still have to kick in more above that? Businesses would also have part of that responsibility. But what I think is really exciting about this is we're really taking a look at a bipartisan, bicameral approach at solving a crisis that impacts everyone. So this is um, not just one you know, entity's problems, it's all of our problem and we need everybody at the table to discuss a solution. And I, I think this may surprise some people and delight some people who have bipartisan support. A number of Republicans have signed on to this. Yeah, if we're gonna be looking for sustainable solutions to some of our largest problems, then we really need to do deep listening and come up with creative solutions. Um, these are big problems. This is not a Washington problem. This is a problem that's happening across the country. And I think that this is one tool in addition to many others that could be quite helpful. How does it differ from, because there's another House bill having to do with child care, 2322, which is from Representative Sen of Mercer Island. Uh, I think the criticism of your bill is that uh, for big companies, this really isn't it. Why would you be giving a credit to big companies who can clearly afford the cost of child care for their tech workers? Uh, how does it differ from House Bill 2322? Well, one of the things that I think is really important is that we can work together so that we have solutions that work for everyone. We cannot continue to move forward with um, really, you know, kind of shutting certain sectors out. And businesses come to the table as, uh, you know, an interested party and in saying, hey, how can we work together? Because we also care about children and families. We know it's a, part of, a very important part of our economic um, growth for everyone. And so we're willing to work with you. Are you willing to work with us? And I think that's uh, really part of what we're trying to do here is to put out good faith efforts to provide um, child care for everyone. Um, this is, you know, I think a partnership and a way that we can work together to make sure that we are expanding the child care workforce 
um, ex expanding the child care availability and expanding um, really the quality of child care for all. Hmm. Uh, we're short across the board. I, I was going to ask because this solves the affordability issue, but not necessarily the access to child care. I remember when I was pregnant with uh, my youngest, who's now four, I think I was maybe 10, 12 weeks along when we started shopping for daycare and the wait list was all the way until she was nine months old. So I hadn't even f finished gestating her before she was put on a wait list. How does your bill solve accessibility? Yeah, well, accessibility is really at the heart of the matter. I think it's a little bit like what we're seeing in housing. We just don't have enough slots for childcare, and it's a dramatic shortage. So we've really got to work um, doing multiple things at the same time in order to meet that accessibility challenge, because it's really a problem for our workforce. Um, it's hitting women the hardest, and that's really concerning to me, because if women aren't able to be in the workforce. It, it's a problem for workforce shortages, but it's certainly a problem for the you know success of women on a whole over time. And so we need to ensure that we're doing multiple things at the same time to address just the sheer shortage of spots. So what are you doing at Olympia to address the shortage? I think it's all of these things. It's a continued um Hopefully we continue to work being creative because we really don't have one solution that is going to be the answer to this problem. We're going to have to add multiple things. One of the things we just did is we made it possible for child care providers to uh, have a tax cut um, that they won't have to pay the fees anymore to be able to be a child care provider. It's tough to make that business work. And we know that they deserve to have high wages, and they are doing just the most important work with our little ones. And so we want to make sure they're taken care of. But as you can manage, imagine, it's also really challenging because we need to make sure that child care is affordable so that people can actually um, pay for it. So there's affordability, there's access, and there's quality. So we continually work on innovative solutions. One of the most exciting things that I've seen in the time that I've been in the legislature is uh, nature-based preschools. Um, we also know that when we do this well, it's not just childcare, it's an investment in our future. And it's the kind of investment that pays in dividends later. So very, very important work um, to have these children in good quality childcare. Representative Alicia Rule of Blaine on House Bill 1716, one of many solutions that have been introduced this session for child care. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Now joining us from the Gia Nursley Show, it starts at 9. Here is G. Scott. Good morning. We want to ask you about House Bill 2845, mm -hmm. which, as everybody knows, would create a pilot program to test automated cameras mm. that would catch speeders, right. take pictures of the license plate, mm. and at some point hold them accountable. Mm. Now, is this responsible, or is this yet another example of how the state is watching our every move? Absolutely responsible. Before I get into this, let yes. me get, let's go around the horn real quick. Yeah. Do we have a speeding problem in this state? Yes. Yes. Do we have a fatality problem on the roads in this state? Yes, we do. Yes. Uh, in 2023, there were 697 car crash deaths statewide, mm. the most out of any year in the last decade. My next question to you all is, do we need to get better with this? Yes. yes. Okay. So if the answer is yes to all those things, 
what other way can we really go about this uh, right away to get some action? And so if there's somebody saying, well, we need state patrol to pull more people over. Is that really what you want? No, you don't. You want state patrol to be able to do other things. I mean, they're still going to do their job with that, but they also want to do other things as well. So this, you put the cameras out there. Let's find out what's going on. Where, as, as my man Sully would say, where's the hot spots where all the speeding is going on and all that kind of stuff. Once you figure that out, let's get a little unpredictable to where you don't know where the cameras are going to be. Now, my next question to everyone is I like asking questions because we're family. Are there any places that you know of right now in your mind that you know not to speed or you know not to yes. run that light because you say, oh, there's a camera there. There's, there's a camera there, right? Yep. Emerald, Emerald Queen Casino right there behind mm-hmm. there on River Road. Folks, mm-hmm. y'all brothers and sisters, y'all know dang on well not to speed down School there. School zones. School zones. When the little light's flashing. Mm-hmm. How much better mm-hmm. was there a decrease in fatalities around school when they implemented that? I yes. guess I guess all I know is I, I, I religiously follow that speed limit because I got a ticket once. Yeah. Going like two miles an hour over. So, so I guess I wouldn't argue against it being at schools and at certain notorious yeah. intersections. Why not certain stretches right. of the highway? Yeah. But I just, you know, this is why I'm Colleen. This is why I'm so passionate about this topic. I'm passionate because you take this right here and somebody's probably saying, oh, gee, why are you so emotional about this? Because here is a simple fix that we can implement right here. Now, apply that to every other topic that we deal with in our society mm-hmm. because we have real issues where politics get in the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if we can let politics and move that to the side and really solve some of these issues, we would be okay. It would be very easy to put these cameras up there. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to ding your insurance, Lois. You're good. We're just going to send you that, that, that ticket in the mail, and then you'll start watching your speed a little bit because we have real bad drivers on the road with the addition to folks being on their phone, TikToking and Instagramming. Well, yeah, I was going to ask Sully about that. Is speeding the leading factor of fatalities? on the road or is it distracted driving because we have laws against distracted driving speeding is usually usually number one reckless driving followed by distraction impairment impairments usually in the top three there you go speed's the number one then Um, let's find a solution I prefer these cameras pull over left lane campers because then we (laughs) people wouldn't have to speed in the far right lane to get around them right right now what about the next step which would be designing cars so they cannot go faster than 60 you mean what they're doing in California yeah yeah, oh, no, oh, thank you. Uh, uh, that fixes They it. do that with scooters. I remember I was on a scooter going through a park, and when it was in a pedestrian area, there was a gate, and my scooter wouldn't go above 15 miles too, an it hour. Makes, it makes too much sense. You can't do that, though, Dave, because then that would, you know, there are other there's some industries and stuff like that that would lose money in that, right? Too bad. Insurance <laughs> agencies would lose money. Uh, then you have, the you know, the lawyers out there would lose money. I mean, imagine if you had a vehicle that does not go over 65 yeah. and a vehicle that also can detect if you've had a drink. You know, you've been drinking some alcohol that does not drive. Oh, imagine that. They have cameras like this in, in London. We were discussing during the break, and I remember asking the taxi driver, wow, do people like this? Does it work? He said, people don't like it, but it works. Do you guys like the school? Tough love. Yeah. yeah. See you guys. Have a good G. one. Scott Thanks, starts G. at 9 with Ursula and Kyra News Radio. Let's get the update on what the state legislature's been doing. There is a bill in front of lawmakers this week that would provide, among other benefits, two years of free rent 
for qualifying Washington residents. And there's a bill addressing what's being called coupon discrimination. Let's go to our legislative correspondent, Car News Radio's Matt Markovich. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Dave. A uh, big day for the legislature. It's the first of many cutoff days. That's what they say. It's day 24 out of day six out of 60 days. A cutoff day is when you have a limit of how many bills you can submit. So today is the last day you can submit and have a hearing. Uh, for a policy bill. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. These next two bills are policy bills, but the first one actually does have uh, what's known as a fiscal note that has a lot of money behind it. And so the final vote of that can be much delayed, uh, much later. So anyway, the first bill we're talking about, you talked about two months free rent. Washington Democrats are proposing the Evergreen Basic Income Pilot Program, aiming to provide reoccurring cash payments for two years to 7,500 low-income state residents with no strings attached. Now, this proposal marks the third time the legislation has considered basic income program. Um, The monthly payments would be equivalent to the fair market rent of a two-bedroom apartment in the participant's location. And currently, that's varying between $958 in Lake Stephen uh, in Stevens County and up to $2,645 in King County. Now, it's estimate uh, the uh, whole two-year pilot program would cost a quarter of a million dollars, $251,000. Critics say it's going to be a lot more than that. So Senate Bill 6196 outlines a criteria, which you have to be a low-income adult or an emancipated minor, a Washington resident, and experiencing a major life event associated with economic instability, such as homelessness, pregnancy, or exiting foster care. Those are the conditions. Now, Senator Claudia Kaufman, the lead sponsor of the bill, emphasized the common desire for all state residents. We want a roof over our head. We want food in our pantry, and we want our family to be safe and healthy. But as we know, that is not the reality for many people in Washington state. So if approved, Washington would be the first state to experiment with a guaranteed income program statewide. Cities have done this. Uh, Cities of Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and here in Tacoma. Now, uh, Teresa Shrepp testified against the bill. The fact that 7,500 individuals will be enrolled in this program demonstrates that it's not really a pilot program, but a significant move towards the socialist model and the nanny state. Now, advocates argue that the initial cost of providing universal basic income would be uh, outweigh the long-term benefits, reducing uh, administrative costs and improving overall well-being. Now, Cherish uh, Cromiller, representing the Olympic Community Action Program, highlighted the positive incomes observed during an 18-month basic income pilot program she ran, where $500 monthly payments were distributed to 20 households. Let me tell you that as somebody who's administered social services for 15 years, we spend more money administering services and deciding whether or not people qualify for money than if we just handed it out. And guaranteed income does that with no strings attached, low overhead costs. Mary Long, representing the conservative ladies of Washington, called it unfair because it allows non-citizens, including undocumented residents, to apply. This bill is a expansion of the state's welfare system. This is going to cost a great deal of taxpayer money. Taxpayers who are having trouble just putting food on their own tables we need to pass programs that encourage people to better their circumstances. This bill is just the opposite. 
Now, research from programs like Growing uh, Resilience in Tacoma, GRIT, which started in 2021 and other cities across the U.S., suggests that guaranteed monthly payments can help people out of poverty and homelessness. And Dave, down in Tacoma, about 100 people, starting in 2021, received $500 for 13 months. And mm-hmm. they say it's a success. And they're, so they're no longer receiving the payments? They're supporting themselves now? Well, uh, it's a re- rotating. It, I appear, it appears to be. Let's put it that way. I don't have the total results of whether how effective I mean, that's the it theory. is, but this they're saying dis- it is. discussed for a long time. The, the idea is that if you do this, it's not that you stay on basic income forever. Eventually, you pull yourself up and you get a job. That's, that's I assume, the goal here, right? Correct. You're absolutely yeah. correct. And they're limited. This is not uh, forever. Like this, this is a two-year pilot program. We're talking mm-hmm. about statewide, and these cities uh, have been doing it for 13 months or either 18 months in other cities. Okay. Tell us about this coupon discrimination issue that yeah, came up. Um, I, I never heard that term before until I was listening to this particular hearing. So state senators are debating a bill that puts online grocery coupons within reach of people who don't have a smartphone or computer to access them. Senate Bill 6261 would require larger grocery stores to honor posted electronic coupons, even if the consumer doesn't subscribe to the store's app or their website. Now, the legislation mandates that certain larger grocery establishments defined as uh, retail stores over 15,000 square feet. And that's those are the big grocery stores. And primarily selling household food stuff must credit any coupon or charge the reduced sales price that a customer found online or in the store. Now, State Senator Steve Conway is a sponsor bill. He called the store's refusal to honor a discounted price available only online or on the store's app coupon discrimination. Food inflation is a reality. So it makes sense that the big grocers who are requiring people to go online to get these discounts should make these coupons available to people who cannot go online. Now, during the bill's initial hearing uh, yesterday, uh, before I, I take that back, it wasn't yesterday, a couple days ago, but they had an executive session yesterday on this. Uh, during the bill's initial hearing before the Senate Labor and Commerce Committee, Chairperson Senator Karen Kaiser quipped about her online coupon experience. I would just say that in my local store, they have such poor Wi-Fi <laughs> that you can't download the coupons, <laughs> even though you have the app. So there are frustrations for all kinds of consumers. Amen. I, and I could test to that, too. Yeah. I have, I've experienced I that very things. same thing. Now, two lobbyists for the grocery industry testified against the bill. Brandon Housekeeper with the Northwest Grocers Association said online coupons target a different customer base. Most of our members, if not all of them, have a policy that if there's a discount available or that you see advertised somewhere and you bring it to the store's attention that you don't have access to that particular medium, but you're aware of the discount, that they'll honor those discounts and and work with the customer. The whole goal is to bring consumers back into their store. But Senator Conway did not buy that comment and fired back. In the store that I've been in, I don't Mm -hmm. see any placards or anything there at the check stand that tells people that they can access these if you'll just talk to us. That is is not there. I'm sorry. And it just frustrates me. So Housekeeper concluded his testimony after being interrupted by Senator Conway, asking lawmakers lawmakers to reject the bill. We just can't support something that mandates how we particularly apply these marketing opportunities across all mediums because they're not all meant to be equal. 
And finally, Katie Beeson of the Washington Food Industry Association. She represents the smaller grocers, but some uh, do meet the size requirements. Uh, they're not necessarily large corporate chains. She testified against the bill as well, citing the store's need to scan manufacturers' physical coupons. But a lot of times, coupons are from the manufacturer, and so it's important that you scan that physical coupon versus just honoring it at the register um, per the customer's request, because that gives the store an opportunity to be reimbursed for those products by the manufacturer. And so I'm not sure if that component was thought through um, when bringing this forward. So, Dave, there you go. New thing I learned today. Coupon discrimination. Yep. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. And that is Mickey time. uh, Let's see. This is the last day of January. Yes, that means February is tomorrow, so it's time to start scheduling your spring and summer vacations. And uh, you have some advice on which the cheapest uh, flight fare days are? Yes. And without looking at the article... On MyNorthwest.com, what day do you believe is the cheapest day to buy your airline tickets? Because there is a day. I already know the answer, but if I didn't know the answer, I would have said Tuesday. Yes. A lot of people thought it was Tuesday. What about you, Dave? Yeah. Well, yeah. I I spent a long time booking things Mm -hmm. because the prices keep changing. But yeah, Tuesdays usually worked for me. Yeah, me too. Well... We're wrong. Expedia yeah. said <laughs> that the that the day after looking at the data, uh, looking at millions and millions of airline tickets sold throughout the year globally, Sunday, Sunday is the magical day to buy a ticket. And according to Christy Hudson, who is the media spokesperson for Expedia, she says that you'll save an average of 13% buying your tickets on mm. Sunday than you will as opposed to, let's say, Friday. I usually come back on Sundays mm-hmm. because that's what the because they, they give you the return trip option and that's you mm-hmm. usually the return on Sunday is the cheapest flight. Well, yeah. it's not about no, leaving, right? It's, it's not about, about leaving. It's about buying. Buying. Your ticket. It's about booking your ticket oh, oh, on a Sunday. Oh, I yeah. see. You mean the day that you do the booking? Yes. Yeah. What? Yes. Now yes. that sounds like coupon discrimination to me. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. And I asked, I said, so why is it like cheaper to buy on a Sunday? And she said, well, there's, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of people looking to buy tickets on Sunday. Well, now there's going to be. Well, maybe, but for two years in a row. I mean, listen, Expedia has released their annual, you know, booking hacks report. And what they found is that for two years in a row, Sunday is going to be the best day for you if you want that cheaper ticket to get it. Also, remember, you don't have to buy a round trip ticket if you're going to travel. You know, Herb Weisbaum from Checkbook.org says there's no benefit to buying that round trip ticket. So if you're going to go on a Sunday... Buy one way and then find a cheaper ticket coming back on another airline. Why does air travel have to be like a 4D puzzle? I don't never know. understand it, right? It's but and then you get to the airport and you got all these fees and you know you're uncomfortable and like mm-hmm. travel is no longer fun if you have to play games with the day of the week you buy the ticket, the day that you leave for your trip. I, I don't know. I'm exhausted by and it. I am too. You can either, uh, or you can fly through the line, right? No pun intended. Right. Oh, you if you have pay. the TSA pre, right. or you can stand in line. And I, as a matter of fact, I was in Salt Lake City last month. I was at the airport and I hadn't renewed my, my TSA pre and, it, and they were like, mm-hmm. ah, you can't use it. I'm like, oh, I'll do it when I, when I, when I get home. I said, I'll just stand in the regular security line. No, it was an hour and 15 minute security Uh line. And I went, oh, I should have just paid. I should have just done it right then and there. I'd already be sitting at the gate. I use a C-Checks, what is it, line reservation service, whatever it is. That's always worked for me pretty well. 
Yeah, that's Spot a good one. But that's a good one, this, too. Back yeah. to this, which day to buy the ticket. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a survey from Expedia? It's not a survey. They looked at data. Okay, well, they, data. They had whatever. data. Yeah. But, I mean, it, Expedia was actually invented to prevent this problem. They also, I mean, supposedly you go to Expedia and you say, give me the cheapest flight, even if it means I have to, you know, book the round trip separately or, you know, go, you know, change planes with different airline in, in Dubuque. Weren't they supposed to solve that problem for us? Well, they do give you what they say are uh, happens to be the best price on the Internet, but it's the airlines that are, that are you know, generating these prices. And because Sunday is one of the cheapest days, or actually it's, it is the cheapest day, but it's the cheapest day because not a lot of people are booked on Sundays. It's like when you go to a restaurant, you've got Taco Tuesday, Dave, and mm-hmm. tacos are 99 cents on Tuesdays. Why? Because not a lot of people are eating out on Tuesdays. So you I make like up that. this thing where you invent some kind of discount deal day, and then you go in and you get your tacos and, and you get to but boost the economy. this is saying if I book my reservations for Taco Tuesday on a Sunday, my Taco Tuesday taco is a cheaper taco. So it's an this extra is true. discount. It's an extra. So we know the best it, yeah. day to buy a ticket. What's the worst day to buy a Fridays. ticket? Fridays. Oh, I buy that. Fridays yeah. Because a lot Everybody's of people thinking are, about vacation. Exactly. People are thinking about their own personal vacations. Mm. Let's book a trip to Vegas for the weekend. Of course, your tickets are going to be more expensive. Another thing she says is, listen, not only do you want to book on a Sunday, but if you want to travel, travel on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday or Thursday. Mm-hmm. That'll also help bring down the cost of the ticket. Mm-hmm. Come back on a Sunday or a Monday if Has you anybody, can. Here's a, here's a survey for you. Has mm-hmm. anybody studied how much the value of my airline miles has dropped over the past like five years. We did a story. I think you were out, and I talked about that with Travis Mayfield. We did like uh, all the all the airlines for the most part had yeah. said, "Hey, listen, we're going to change our rewards programs." Remember, Delta did that last year, and a lot of people were like, "Hey, hey, now don't mess with my mileage." And so Delta was like, "Okay, well, yeah. let's reexamine they, this." They say, "Oh, don't worry, your points are forever," mm-hmm. but the value of those points mm-hmm. is not forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. This is very true. Yes. Thank you, Mickey. You're very welcome. You got us all riled up. I know. I rarely see Davis riled up. (laughs) Because I have to fly a lot now. You do. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.